Welcome to the Sages Among Us. What makes a community great? Most importantly, it's the people who live and work there and are engaged in community life. The Sages Among Us focuses on those people, what they do and why they do it, and celebrates the leadership, time, and energy they bring to making a positive difference for all of us. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of The Sages Among Us and the opportunity to meet another amazingly civically engaged citizen and community builder. I'm your host, Brian Buckley, and our guest tonight is a civic leader and volunteer, a health worker, and an award-winning author. We'll get the story behind each of those life threads during our show tonight, and you'll have the opportunity to call in with questions during the second half of the show. Tonight's multifaceted guest is Shirley Descard, who hails from the small mountain community of Camptonville. A reading of her complete resume would take the entire show, but some of the highlights include public health and school nurse, executive director of the Camptonville Community Partnership, and coordinator director of the Yuba Community Collaborative for Healthy Children. As a wordsmith, Shirley is a member of the Sierra Writers Group, Sierra Muses Press and Workshop, the senior editor of the Camptonville Courier, and the award-winning author of the recently published novel, Heartwood. Seemingly unrelated to any of this was a year in Florence where she worked as a model for an environmental activist fashion designer and as a dental assistant. Shirley, welcome to the Sages Among Us. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, it's uh, great to have you on the show, and uh, let's dive right in and find out more about you. Um, Going to college at UC Davis and UC San Francisco and eventually earning degrees in nursing and public health, it would appear that you had an early interest in the health service professions. Were there any family influences that led you on the public health path? Yeah, well, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and my father was a family doctor in Carmichael, which is near Sacramento. My mother was a nurse, and I just assumed that I'd follow them and go into health. Um, however, back then, nobody asked me if I considered being a doctor, <laughs> because men were doctors and women were nurses, so they just assumed that I'd be a nurse. And that was the world we lived in back then. But um, I've, made, I've made nursing really work for me, and it, it turned out okay. But my father was a, a pub, also a public health doctor, and he was a good role model, and uh, he volunteered a lot. So I absorbed some of his, um, his philosophy. So he was civically engaged as well. Uh-huh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you, you, you described your parents and, and what they were doing and, and growing up in Carmichael. Um, in those growing up years or early adulthood, was there anything in particular that contributed to the direction your life has taken since then? You know, something like a watershed event or a peak experience? <laughs> well, you know, the last year of nursing school, I was at the UC San Francisco Medical Center, and my new boyfriend, whose name was Dick Descartes, um, he was he finished dental school and was sent to Vietnam as a dentist, and we wrote letters a couple times a week, which really is an intimate way to get to know each other. Um, if we had been texting for that year, we probably wouldn't be married by now. <laughs> anyway, we both <laughs> saved our letters, and we and I transcribed them, and I found two letters that were actually really interesting. And one was where I wrote him, and I had found my passion in community health and school nursing. It's like I was so excited, you know, of all the fields that nurses can go into. That was it. And then the other letter was where we both described the life we wanted, like um, I wanted rural, I wanted to have a garden, I wanted to travel, I wanted to be of service, you know, those kinds of things. 
And um, both of our visions match so well that um, I think by the time he returned, I was his fiance. And 52 years mm-hmm. later, I still am, <laughs> although we're married. All right. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, an early version of eHarmony.com without, you know, any of the Internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a lot slower right. communication, too. Right, right, right. Um, so, and, and obviously, you, you were a writer, even back then, at least mm-hmm. uh, as far as uh, Dick was concerned, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's how, that's how we got to know each other. Right. Well, I also noticed that early on you worked as a nurse on a Navajo Indian reservation in Arizona and mm-hmm. also as a Lamaze childbirth instructor and a family planning clinic nurse in, in Oakland. Um, what what led you, and we were not even talking about Florence, what led you to Camptonville in Nevada City in, in the mid-1970s? Well, we, we were married and we lived and worked, you know, in Italy in the Navajo Reservation for a few years. Um, but then when we were ready to settle down and start a family, you know, you start looking for a, a more solid community to raise children in. And we traveled up, up and down the California coast from Canada to Mexico. And we were looking for a, a place that had, first of all, we had criteria, like four seasons. We wanted vibrant art community. We wanted good restaurants. And so when we came to Nevada County, we we knew we'd found it, so it was easy. Um, Dick set up his dental practice in Grass Valley, then later in Nevada City. And I taught Lamaze childbirth classes, and I was a mother at first to our two daughters, Crystal and Mariah. But then in about a year, we had found a community of like-minded families just across the middle Yuba River in Camptonville. And we were all like more or less the same age. We were all back to the land, self-sufficient. And we built our homesteads, and we raised our children together, and we all ate organically. And it's kind of like the setting that I wrote about for Harmony in Heartwood, um, which makes that part of the book a little bit of a fictional memoir. But those are the good days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure they were they were quite idyllic. Mm. Um, well, you know, looking back on, on that uh, experience in the 70s and 80s and uh you know, so much that's happened uh, since then. You, you've had a lifetime ex- of a experience as a nurse and a health provider or, or a coordinator in a variety of settings. What do you take away from all that? Are there, are there any large trends or, or maybe some small stories that stand out to you over those years? Um, yeah, you know, there, I think there were two things that made a huge impact on me. One, when I was a school nurse, um, I worked you know, for about 20 years in uh, Camptonville and Twin Ridges District and small schools, but I was used to working one-on-one with families. A, a teacher would refer a, a kid to me and say, can you do, you know, help, help this kid, whatever his medical problem was. And so um, I used to show up at the door, and here I was, you know, of the mother's trailer or house or whatever, and I was young, white, middle-class, professional woman there to help these parents, you know, who had very deep, multi-phasic um, problems, and I just never really felt like I was that effective, and then I, rem- I remember this moment very clearly. Um, I was standing outside a classroom door of the 7th and 8th grade teacher after school, and Judy said, in great frustration, she said, I've been t- I take care of these kids all day long. I send them home to their families. They come back the next day a mess. And, this, and then she said, why doesn't this community do something about these families? And I, I know she was used to just complaining, but I took that. It's like a huge aha. It's like I realized mm-hmm. that I really would be much more effective if we worked at the community level instead of one-on-one. And to shift mm-hmm. the power 
to the community. So for me, it was a huge paradigm shift. And then what happened soon after that was we, um, our community started working with the Sierra Health Foundation um, in their Community Partnership for Healthy Children initiative, which is a 10-year program, which is pretty unusual for a funder. And we got to be very familiar in working with the ABCD philosophy, which is asset-based community development. And it was developed by John McKnight and Jody Kretzman at Northwestern University in Chicago. And so we formed a nonprofit called Camptonville Community Partnership. And it was a community-based nonprofit located at the school. So we were in partnership with the school. And we held this, philosoph- this kind of new philosophy was that we looked at our community as if everyone had something to offer. And we'd say we kind of have a quiet conspiracy to overlook the deficiencies and focus on the assets of both individuals and of communities. Because um, mm-hmm. Camptonville in those days was had a pretty bad reputation. We're kind of an outlaw community. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, I, I shifted from being a caretaker to just looking at what people could, could um, offer. And we were able to do some evaluation and found some really positive impact of, of using that approach um, instead of the, uh, the the fixing people approach. Mm-hmm. Well, what what do you see or regard as some of the the real successes of that approach you know how have things changed from back when you had that uh conversation that was so frustrating with that yeah teacher? yeah well you know it took a, num- a number of years but um well we had sri in palo alto as an evaluation firm and they helped us through mm-hmm. this grant to do a formal evaluation of our impact it's, you know it's one thing to say oh i did I, you know, I fed X number of children breakfast, but it's another thing to be able to say, so what? You know, what, how do their lives change? Right. And so uh, some of the things we found was there was uh, less vandalism at the school, and uh, the children said they knew more adults they felt safe with and could count on, and that was huge. We actually really focused on that, helping kids feel connected to a growing circle of caring adults. Um, there was less gun and drug violence in the community, and there was more civic engagement by people of all ages. So, you know, and our reputation started changing, too. The union started covering positive things about us instead of, you know, the shootings and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. I think, yeah. And 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 you got that good restaurant you were looking for at the Mayo. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, unfortunately, that one's not in service right now. We hope hope it'll come back. But... But, you know, um, just in terms of ABCD, the Asset-Based Community Development, um, Kathy LeBlanc is now the executive director. She took my position, and she is still teaching that um, process or that philosophy to other communities on how to use this ABCD approach. So, you know, you can always contact Camptonville Community Partnership if communities want to find out more. Great, great. You're listening to The Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Brian Buckley, and we're talking today with Shirley Descartes, a health worker and community organizer in the community of Camptonville, who is also the senior editor of the Camptonville Courier and the award-winning author of the novel Heartwood. Shirley, let's talk about writing for a bit. Have you always been a writer? Well, um, in in many ways, I've always written in whatever work I've done, but writing a novel was never on my radar. Um, so, but here I am. You know, I'm 75 years old, and I've just published my first novel. I mean, it's, even I can't believe it. Um, but I've been a storyteller all my life. I've, I've uh, Saturday mornings when I when I was little, my sisters would climb up on my bed, and I'd make up stories for them. Same with my daughters when they were little. So I kind of learned to use storytelling as a way to convey community stories. 
um, especially for grant mm-hmm. writing and reporting to funders and so forth. So, um, mm-hmm. and same thing with writing my family, telling my family Gold Rush history. I did, I told it through fiction, which I think really gets to the emotional truth better than just an array of historical dates and events. Right, right. Um, well, you know, uh, the other thing I, I noticed is that writing is often pictured as a solitary act, and, and of course it is, but I think your approach to it has involved a high level of community building as well, you know, with your founding of the Sierra Muses Press and Workshop, as well as membership in the Sierra Writers Group. Tell us about those organizations and, and about a community of writers. Yeah, well, Nevada County has has always had a very vibrant writing community, um, although it's been somewhat muted by COVID because, you know, like so many of us, we can't meet in person and things have kind of trailed off or are on hold. Um, but, I mean, my goodness, there's just... There's, up until COVID, there were all sorts of writing groups and events happening around literacy and so forth. But um, the Sierra Muses Press started in 2012, and it just started as a writing critique group of four writers, um, Milo Johansson, Leslie Rivers, Jennifer Bliss, and myself. And we, we started out by just being kind of like a mutual support group, you know, we, as we each worked on our own separate novels. But none of us had written a novel before, and none of us had published, so we just kind of held each other's hands and, you know, helped each other along the way. And then when we were ready to publish, we formed the Sierra Muses Press, which enabled us to do uh, ease, more easily do the publication part. And I, we're all very proud of the fact that all four of us have independently published our novels now. So yay for us. <laughs> that's pretty. That's right. a huge accomplishment. Shirley and, Shirley and Brian, this is Keith in the studio, and I want to pass along a call we got from uh, a, a gentleman named Day Yane, and he said, we are so proud of Shirley and her accomplishments. It's amazing that what she has gotten done without any fanfare. So there's a nice compliment from one of our <laughs> listeners. Thank you, Danny. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Well, um, then the Sierra the Writers has been around for quite a long time, too. It's a group of, right. it's an informal group of local writers of all genres and experience, and it's taking a, a break also since COVID. Um, so it's not meeting or active, but Sierra College has actually become a partner and is putting on the annual Sierra Writers Conference, which will happen again in February at Sierra College. And it just so happens that the theme is storytelling, past and future. <laughs> so it's like, yay! Mm-hmm. I said, I'll probably be offering one of the sessions. But it's great for beginning writers, um, advanced writers. So anyway, February, Sierra College, check it out. It'll probably be advertised in the, in the union. Right. Well, uh, getting back to Sierra Muses Press and Workshop, is that an organization that is open to others, or is that still in essence, that group of those founding four members? Well, it's, it's right now, it's still the group of the founding four. We just each wanted to get through publishing our book. Um, but actually, we're going to be meeting here pretty soon to kind of look at maybe expanding our um, horizons on what we have to offer and including more of the writing community. So stay tuned. Um, we, you know, people can con- contact me um, if they are interested in checking that out. Yeah, okay. good question. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your novel, Heartwood. It's received quite a few accolades, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really very proud of the recent national awards, um, mainly because of the categories I won are personally meaningful to me. 
Um, I was the winner, a national winner for Visionary Fiction, um, National Indie Excellence Award. So Visionary Fiction is like, yes, that's exactly what I was doing. Um, and I was a finalist for the Eric Hoffer Awards Montaigne Medal, which you can't apply for. They just give it to you. And it's, it's only awarded to thought-provoking books that either illuminate, progress, or redirect thought. So it's like, yeah, they got it. I was like, I'm, anyway, that, that meant a lot to me. A few other words um, as well, but um, I think I feel also especially rewarded by how many readers have told me um, how much Heartwood has resonated with them in lots of different ways. But um, And that is a book for the times that we're in right now, uh, more so than ever, more than ever anticipated, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, as we've discussed earlier in the show, you, you've got a lifelong involvement in promoting human health. And it seems to me that's also led you to be involved with environmental, ecological health as well. Would it, would it be fair to say that Heartwood is an expression of that same theme? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because to me, the health of humans is intimately connected to the health of the Earth. You, know, you can't be healthy on an ailing planet, right? And, I mean, that goes for all life forms, not just human um, human beings, but all forms of life. So, um, you know, the health professional... I use the concept, uh, first, do no harm. Um, I think because everything we do and don't do has an impact on the future of our planet. So with Heartwood, um, you know, the story centers on three family women who are living 100 years apart, um, the past, present, and future. And um, Eliza, who is um, sort of the historical fiction part of the book, is post-Gold Rush in the uh, Woodland Yolo area. Then there's Harmony, who's um, the homesteader in the Sierra, and I have to say, people ask me, and I go, yeah, it's a little bit of a memoir, <laughs> parts of it at least. Yeah. Then um, Amisha is in the imagined future. Um, it, it's a speculative fiction or dystopic fiction, also set in the Sierra, all in Northern California. And um, each woman kind of witnesses man's impact on the planet through the eyes of her time. You know, it's kind of that gradual change. So, you know, like a tapestry, I, I wove all the themes that I care about, which we kind of talked about, the health of the planet, health of human beings, um, and I wove them through the eyes um, of each woman, from climate change to the progressive deterioration of humans' health. Um, because 20 years as a school nurse, I, I've observed a lot of trends, all these kind of, you know, if you have a long span of time, you can you can see which way things are going, like... Um, how many children are being diagnosed with chronic diseases, um, asthma, right. diabetes, cancers? You know, I saw an uptick of those just in the 20 years I was a school nurse. I saw a lot more and more allergies and food intolerances. You know, at first it was just peanuts. Kids were allergic to peanuts. And now it's a long list from lactose, gluten intolerance to grains. I mean, you name it. Mm-hmm. And then also mm-hmm. the increase in attention deficit disorders and now autism. And, um, and then... Aside from children, there's also been a steady decrease in human fertility. I mean, almost right. everybody knows somebody who's had a hard time getting um, conceiving. So you know, it's, but it, when it happens so slowly, like the frog in the you know the cold water that turns to boiling, you just don't notice it. Right. And so I thought, well, if I have somebody from the past, somebody from the present, and then project into the future, you can kind of get that that trend, that flow. Right. And right. And then the other thing that um, 
that's just we're just beginning to see the impact of children's intimate use of technology. Um, that's I think right. sometimes even supplants the child's own sense of who they are. And um, you know that's why I made Amisha in the future a doctor, a pediatrician, so that I could use her to deal with the changes in children's health that I've been <laughs> observing all these years. Right. Made it easy. Right. <laughs> right, and it's it's not like she's uh, doing a profession you know nothing about. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Well, you know, the, uh, talking about Hartwood, it's got elements of science fiction, historical fiction, and memoir all wrapped up in a novel that, that spans generations. Um, it's got a compelling story, obviously, which is a key element of all good reads. But the other element, as you've been alluding to, is is a larger message that can stay with the reader you know, long after the interesting details of the story recede. Um, the novel obviously has both. Did it start that way for you, or did the message blossom on its own as you as the story developed for you? Uh, yeah, you know, I never intended to write a message book. Um, it's interesting how it started um, ten years ago. I, I've been working on this for ten years, I mean, off and on, obviously. But it started with um, just my fascination with my great grandmother, Emily Hoppen, and I have a lot of her. Uh, writings and her scrapbook and everything. She was a pioneer activist who came to YOLO after the gold rush and settled there. And she became quite a figurehead for women and um, the temperance movement and um, the suffrage movements. So I wanted to write her biography, um, but I kept thinking, well, what's the larger context of her life and her work? You know, what would, who would she be if she were here today? So then I thought, okay, well, I'll expand and I'll include my era, you know, back to the Landers, 1970s. Because um, we had a lot in common, you know, we both loved the, the earth and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was stayed at that for a while, and then um, then one night, I you know, the future arrived, <laughs> and it was about mm-hmm. three in the morning. I was visited by an apparition standing at the end of my bed, and it was just brief. But um, she said, "I'm Amisha. I'm your great granddaughter." And she said that, um, you know, if you're going to write about the past and you're going to write about the future, uh, present, that you have to write about the future. You have to include the future in your book because you're, you guys are creating the, the life that she's living, the world that she's living in right now, in the future. And she was basically asking for help, you know, sort of reached across mm-hmm. time. I mean, this, you know, so I, I went back to sleep and in the morning I woke up and I went, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. Um, and and I, but then I knew I had a, a different book, and it was and right, I just absolutely. went from there. It was amazing. Um, but so so then that's when I kind of got the concept of I wanted to ask a lot of pose a lot of questions. If we don't pay attention and today's trends continue, what will the future look like? And I tried to make it real because obviously this is a person mm-hmm. I care about. She's my great granddaughter who has yet to be born, but you know mm-hmm. she's family. So I included, throughout the, the book, I included scenarios of increase, increased droughts, wildfires, air quality, rising sea levels. And when I was writing, they were like projections out in the future. I'm talking about 2070. But what's disturbing mm-hmm. a lot of people, and I'm kind of blown away too, is like, no, it, this, is, this is now. This is happening now. And right. um, I, I, that, that I did not expect. It's, this has come on us way, way too suddenly. Um, so, and sort then like also... That, uh, that, that novel, Station 17, that was a post-pandemic uh, world, <laughs> coming yeah. out just before... Just before yeah, I know, it was a pandemic. COVID. Wasn't that the yeah. prescient? Okay, hey, yeah. hey, Dick and Brian, it's Keith in the studio again. We have another question. 
Uh, and the question is, you've opened so many doors of concern. Uh, how do you know what, where the next novel is going to focus? Where do you go from here? <laughs> I'm still thinking about that one. You know, it's, I tell people it's like having a baby. You know, you, you, people ask you after you give birth, well, when are you going to have your next baby? And it's like, ah, oh, I think I'm just going to let this little baby walk around for a while and see what it does. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely, you know, there's follow-up there. There's a lot of things, you know, what can you do? What, and that's partly what I explored with each of the three women in the past, present, and future. They each, they each found ways to... Um, Move from the feeling of helplessness to change what was happening, but they each did it differently. And I think they mm-hmm. each they each found their own way. But it all comes down to lis- finally listening to the silence. You know, listening right. to your a woman's deeper intuitive knowing. And you have to start there. And that's kind of the baseline of of my story. Is it's all in the silence. Um, our answers, our our directions are there. Um, okay. But in the meantime, pr- the problems seem like they're overwhelming. Right, right. Well, you know, uh, before we wrap up, Shirley, I'd like to take advantage of your experience in, in two two different dimensions. First of all, uh, with listeners, if if somebody has a passion for for helping people stay healthy like you, what are the, some of the things they could do as a volunteer? Well, I, I would say, first of all, ask, find out what do you care about. You know, um, I think that's a good place to start. Um, not what you're passionate about, because that seems like a higher level of energy, but just what do you care about? You know, so if somebody cares about they like to garden or they love uh, talking with people, listening ear, that's a good way to start matching up your interest in, in people's health. And, of course, in Nevada, Canada, there's a tremendous number of nonprofit organizations and schools and churches. There's no shortage of places to plug in your, your uh, caring. Um, but you can also just start in small ways with your own neighborhood, the people you know. Um, you know start, I tell people, small, start with one small thing and do right. that and do it well. And then, then pick up another smart, next small thing and just keep adding next small things. Um, and pretty, and pretty soon, soon you're, you're, yeah. you, you, may, you may be surprised where you are. <laughs> right, right. And, and what about if someone wants to be a writer? What uh, would be some steps you'd encourage them to take? Well, perseverance. Um, like I said, it took me 10 years to complete the story. But just keep at it and write regularly. You know, journal, jo- uh, blog posts, share with others. Find other people who want to write. You don't have to be expert writers, but just, you know, critique each other's work. Um, there's a lot of things online you can do. You can, and, of course, you can go to the Sierra Writers Conference, and there's, they have resources there. Um, if, you, if you want to email me, I can give, give more specific things. You can email me at heartwoodnovel at gmail.com. Um, okay. Well, thanks for that link. Yeah. Um, also, uh, before we have to sign off, uh, how can people get their own copy of Heartwood? Yeah, okay, well, I always start with suggesting people support their local independent bookstores. So in Nevada City, you can buy Heartwood at the bookseller and, books and Harmony Books. And then you can also buy it at J.G. Jackson. They wanted to um, um, carry it, and they, uh, they have it on the shelf next to Gary Snyder's books, which just really pleases me to death. And you can also get it at SPD and Reflection Skin Oasis. And then, of course, you can get it online at Amazon. You can buy the ebook and the paperback on Amazon. And if you want to get an autographed copy, you can contact me. Um, and I always put some inserts in the book, so, some surprises. And again, you can email me at heartwoodnovel at gmail.com. 
Okay, well, with the few seconds left before we get our outro music, can you share with us something you've learned from a lifetime filled with promoting health, community, and contemplation? Uh huh. Well, you know, I think I'll just use the words that I that I had that came through Shema'a, who was the indigenous, an ancient indigenous woman that started and ended the story. She said, "Listen to the silence, hold the earth in your hands, gather the women, then do what must be done." All right. Well, thank you for sharing that wisdom with us. I'm Brian Buckley, and you've been listening to The Sages Among Us on KVMR. Thanks to my guest, Shirley Descartes, for sharing her story tonight, and to Keith Porter for putting it all together as our engineer. Finally, thank you so much for joining us this past half hour and for everything you do to make your part of the world a little bit better.